Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We have been working through a series called Looking for God, where we, we started with Paul talking about our limitations that we see in the dark, dimly through a mirror. Uh, we looked at uh, the prophet Elisha and how do we have a, eye, a, a vision for something even bigger, even, even more than what's around us. And we also looked last week about Moses' little vision of God moving by in the rocks and how that any encounter with God is transformative, any little glimpse transforms us. And today we enter into our next step, and I want to pause before we get there and note that even though we look for God, sometimes we look for things that are a little bit less than. Uh, we don't always have our intentions and our motivations and our eyes gazing for the best of things in the world. Maybe some of you have enjoyed some uh, guilty pleasure television. Uh, I'm primarily going to put reality TV in this category where you're just kind of watching the humanness of people come out on screen, uh, whether that's game show type reality of like survivors uh, uh, or The Bachelor uh, or Keeping Up with the Kardashians or Real Housewives or any of these kinds of shows in which people are just kind of trying to gawk at things, look from afar and um, take pleasure in watching the tensions or maybe sometimes resolutions of other people's drama. Uh, and one particular peculiar uh, bit of television that somehow has made a lot of ratings, made a lot of views. Uh, maybe at some point you were watching daytime television or you caught reruns of a uh, talk show called Maury. Maury would do a segment called, Who's the Father? You are the father. You are not the father. And what they did was serialized paternity tests. And it turned it into a game for the audience of who's actually the dad of this person. And you get a resolution. You get the tension and resolution all at one moment, unless it's you're not the father and then we're left for another episode. Um, but people are left gawking into these situations, wondering what on earth, um, you know, thinking probably for themselves, I'm glad this isn't my life. But somehow like cut off from the fact of like, the actual horror of being in this situation of, uh, you know, wrapped into your life and your own kind of whatever you're ashamed of being on public television and um, the fact there's an actual child who has a face and who has a life that their life is affected by the answer to these questions. Uh, but somehow we are hooked in to people's drama, to people's tension. Um, we're looking for something and sometimes those little glimpses are things that aren't necessarily as meaningful or as wholesome, uh, but yet they hook us nonetheless. I do want to talk about this morning what satisfies us. What are we looking for? And so Philip in our story gets us started by saying, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. So that's a satisfaction that's not 
uh, just a, oh, I get the answer to this question. I get to find out who's the dad. Uh, but what does, look, what does true satisfaction look like? Show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. I have to start with uh, the words, I'm trying to think of the adjective. I was going to say the words of the great. Uh, I don't know how you want to identify them, but the words of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I can't get no satisfaction. There's something strangely true in the words of their lyrics. We try and we try and we try to get satisfaction, and yet it keeps eluding us. And I appreciate that the story begins in the lyrics about when I'm driving in my car and the man comes on the radio and he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination, that there's a consumerism in our society which we're always getting ads, even more so than when that song was written. Your cell phone is blowing up with ads. There's ads you walk by. Every single thing almost in today's world is just hit with a sticker of an ad. And yet we keep being sold so many things, and yet we're never satisfied. And so we're stuck in the cycle of being hungry for something, and yet unsatisfied. And I think that uh, we've all had that feeling for ourselves. Um, you know, who's had buyer's remorse? You thought forever, oh, I, if I could just get this one thing, maybe it's a computer, maybe it's a phone, maybe it's a house, maybe it's a job, whatever it is, and then that thing comes and it just doesn't quite satisfy like you hoped it would. And then you're left with a hole again looking for more. And so I want to know, Philip suggests, show me the Father and we'll be satisfied. Is that actually enough for us? When you, when you are looking for God, is it actually enough or is it, you know, I'd love God, but also can I get that car, that computer, that phone, whatever it is uh, in life that you're also looking for? Is it enough to just be shown the Father? And I think that sometimes in church life we, we often get distracted on this. Uh, and, you know, we have a product, living water, to use John's uh, language at the well, uh, and Jesus offering living water. And we have something that satisfies, something that can bring life, and sometimes we settle for some soda to give out or something. You know, something that's not quite as healthy, not quite as life-giving, um, but maybe we'll settle for something less than as a community. Well, what kind of satisfaction are we seeking? Philip says, show us the Father. And we've talked about why that's a little bit of a challenging question, a challenging uh, request. How do you show the invisible God? If God is, is invisible and no one has ever seen God, to quote John 1.18, how do we show the Father? And I think beyond just that physical conundrum, what does it mean to show the Father? I think we've all had moments in our life where we were despairing of something. We were in pain, we were in grief, and the presence of the Spirit in our lives felt distant and far and absent. 
And all in that moment that would satisfy, all that you could just hope for was just to feel God in the midst of your life in that moment. And how do we get to that moment without just having to be in the pit? How can that just be our regular everyday demeanor of just longing and hungering for show us the Father? And so that's the question we've been asking in this series. And Philip gets an interesting reaction. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus doesn't care. Uh, Jesus is not thrilled by this question at this stage in this uh, ministry. How can you say this? How do you still ask this? And I think about teaching a, uh, teaching a class. So for any of our teachers in our room, you start with an elementary, like, introductory material content and everything you do in the whole course builds off of this content throughout the whole class. You get to the end of the year, it's a final, it's whatever assessment you're doing, and completely it's missed. You're like, where have you been? How is it even possible to go this whole class and miss that very first lecture that everything built off of? And so I would, you know, I think about um, when I taught a theology class at Marquette, we did one assignment in different ways throughout the whole class, and it was this, can you read Scripture from different angles? So we'd ask them, um, what's going on in the story world? Like, what's going on in the characters and the plot? What ideas emerge from the story? So what are the ideological questions that are going on? And why on earth would an author write this? So what's the communal angle? What's, what's the application of this? And you'd ask them to, to do that in class. You'd have a first essay, and you'd correct some problems where they didn't see it. You get to the final. Still, no clue about the differentiation between these different angles. And you're like, what have we been doing this whole year? And Jesus is saying, hey, what have we been doing? Whether it's a year or it's been three years, however long Jesus' ministry is, um, in the Gospel of John, you get a kind of a three-year picture how have we been doing this so long and yet you still ask me this question? I want to pause for that, the fact that there's some hope and glimmer in that. He's not really passing the test. But that doesn't mean that Philip isn't already being a disciple trying to live out the calling God has for his life, even though he has no idea what's going on. And so there might be some hope if you ever feel distraught, you don't know what's happening, you don't understand what God's doing, you don't understand what you believe, there's still some hope and faith and faithfulness in showing up and doing God's work even when you don't fully comprehend what's going on. And so Philip asks to show us the Father. And I, I don't think we can truly grasp the weight of Jesus' answer. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What do we do with such a bold statement? Because it doesn't even matter to me whether you think, like just as to, to play this conversation, it doesn't matter to me whether you think Jesus says this or the church says it through Jesus. Either group saying, if you saw Jesus, you saw the Father, is an incredibly lofty, incredibly magnified statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Now, there was an interesting conversation and debate throughout the church's history about how do we show the Father? How do we show uh, art? How do we do art as a Christian community? And so you might know that especially in the Eastern tradition, um, there became a lot of icons in which you'd have these images of, of Christ or saints or something that were meant to turn your attention upward to God and, and aid and worship and prayer life. The West had some as well, but it, particularly in the East, it was really strong. Well, that was going on for several hundred years until around the 600s or 700s, some people started pushing back and saying, you know, we have an Exodus commandment that says, don't make any graven images. Well, what are we doing with all these images? And so it became a massive, uh, often violent debate in the, in the church. And so it kind of escalated until Emperor Leo III ordered in the 700s the destruction of all iconography in the empire. Like, can you imagine... Uh, Pick whatever like government size you want. The local mayor, the governor, the president, whoever it was saying, all right, all churches, you need to tear down your crosses, you need to tear down your paintings, you gotta take all of the art off of everything. Uh, this is a painful time of, of worship in the life of the church. And so they argued back and forth. And the answer to the debate that kind of won the day came from a certain John of Damascus from Syria who spent his life in a monastery and writing as a theologian. And what he argued was that the incarnation, uh, this, that the word of God become flesh, to use the language of John 1, was a principle that made art possible. That if the word of God would take on flesh artwork has a place, and that it's not to be worshipped in itself, but it's meant to point to the one beyond it. And so he said, in former times, God without body or form could in no way be represented. But today, since God has appeared in the flesh and lived among humans, I can represent what is visible in God. I do not venerate matter, but I venerate the creator of matter who became matter for my sake, who assumed life in the flesh, and who through matter accomplished my salvation. And I wanted to share that story to point out that uh, in a tradition that talks about the invisibility of God, uh, often in our traditions we have degraded the physical world, material things, to say only the spiritual matters and that the physical doesn't matter. But here we have as a story like I want to see the person, I want to see God who no one has seen. And Jesus is like, you've been walking around this. You've seen it. It's already here. It's in the life of someone who was living among the poor, who was going from town to town, who was uh, willing to touch a leper who wasn't treated with dignity because they were ostracized, was willing to talk to women who had been thrown out by their men, uh, the woman at the well who had been discarded by several people. He was willing to uh, forgive from the cross uh, to the person crucified next to him. Uh, the visibility of God was already in the world around them. 
and yet they were still seeking something more. And I think um, we can learn something from art, that it's not about just having a beautiful painting because it's a beautiful painting, but in what way does it point your eyes to something beyond? Um, And how can we appreciate the beauty of the physical uh, that tells us something about the great architect of the world? And so, Jesus goes on in this passage, and he's going to talk a little bit more about his relationship to the Father. I'm going to just going to read this for us. We didn't read this, this earlier. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. This, if you're reading probably John 14 through 16, maybe 17, you get stuck in language like this that sometimes seems repetitive, sometimes seems convoluted, and you're like, what on earth does any of this mean? Uh, the Father's in me and I'm in the Father, and we get stuck into, uh, to use theological terms, oh no, what's the, 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 the Trinitarian ontology? What is the essence of God's being in the Trinity and all of this kind of like esoteric mysterious um, pursuits of knowledge. But I think there's something much, much more simpler that Jesus is doing in this text. Um, Most of the time in John, when you read things like, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, think about it from an ancient context of, um, it's called a patron-client relationship. I'm a master and I send someone out on my behalf. So they're like my proxy. Everything that they do, treat it like I did it. Everything that they say, treat it like I said it. And most of the time in John, when we get this language, think about it as Jesus sees himself as the one sent from God, and everything that he is doing, he's commissioned to do. Uh, So how do I know what God is like? God's the one who goes to the woman at the well and offers her even more than she can imagine. Uh, God's the one... Uh, who gives bread to those who are hungry, who speaks on the behalf of the poor who are being mistreated. Um, Jesus is so fully the sent one of God that we see the Father in everything that Jesus does. Now, I know that this is a really heavy idea-focused passage, um, it's, it's a lot of thought process, not a lot of doing. And we're going to get to more doing in the next few weeks about what do we do with this. But there's something really, really important that I want us to catch. It's on us to recognize the Father. Because Jesus' answer is like, hey, you've been here this, this whole time. Why haven't you noticed? I'm right in front of you. And so... The Father is at work all around us. How often do we recognize it? How often do we see it? Because the only thing preventing it is our own selves. Are we looking for it? Can we open our spiritual eyes to see the world that we are involved in and around actually points to someone greater? Where do you see God at work in your own life? I love asking that question, especially in team meetings. 
to start. Um, because we can so often get to the critical things of what are we doing wrong, what do we need to work on, all of that. But where do you see God's beauty, where do you see God's goodness at work around you? Because when we see those little bright spots, we should run to those, we should celebrate them, we should be all about making uh, as many of those bright spots come to light and be broadcasted out into the world as we can. Where do you see God at work in the world around you? I also want to remind us that we have a kind of a special burden, a special responsibility. Um, if you've been on this, this faith journey for a long time, we might be a little bit like Philip. God's like, how long have you been on this? Like, you haven't seen me yet? You know, if, if we are still looking, like saying, hey, show us the Father and I can't see it, how hard is that going to be for us to turn to others who are on the outside, who are on the fringes of society, who are being overlooked and neglected? How do we help them see the Father when we're not even looking for the Father ourselves and haven't seen and haven't cherished and celebrated and communicated that out to other people? So to return, what actually satisfies you? Is seeing the Father actually enough? Philip had said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Because I think we often say it, but can we examine our hearts to see if that's actually enough for us? Uh, is it not my own little platform or preferences or desires or what other things are in the way, but like actually getting to encounter God at work in my life and the world around me, is that enough? Can you imagine not only yourself, but our whole community, satisfied that the Father was being revealed all around us. Satisfied that God was already at work in us, already becoming visible, and wanting nothing more than just to share that vision with other people. All agendas aside, all other things aside, here's where God's at work in this community, and let me just want to shout about it. Let everybody hear the beauty of what's going on. What actually satisfies you? When we move on from this space, we're going to start looking at what do we do with this? What do the disciples do when they're left? Jesus is gone. Where do we continue to look for God after Jesus is gone in the story? But right now, I just want you to just be able to sit and reflect on what satisfies you and what are you looking for? Where do you see God? So I'm going to give us a little bit of silence and I'm going to close us in prayer. God, you know our hearts that we are all, we're trying our best to follow you, to see you. Sometimes we fall short on that. Sometimes we get in the way of others seeing you at work. Sometimes we we make mistakes, we fall short, we, we you know, have the typos, the whatever it is that distracts. But Lord, I just ask that you would help each and every one of us to have eyes that truly look for you, that look past and through all of the distractions into more. Lord, I just ask that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your presence 
and that our vision for you uh, would be front and center of everything that we do. Lord, all of this we ask in your name. Amen.